Um, and uh, there, last, last year I taught a study over here in the side class where I <clears throat> told a story about a man named Steve Brown. Steve Brown, a Christian radio personality and author of the book Three Free Sins. Three Free Sins. In this book, Steve Brown says the following. <clears throat> The reason Christians are so bad is that we're trying so hard to be good. We've missed what God's grace is all about. That's the message of my book, Three Free Sins. How to get from the misguided obsession with sin management that binds so many Christians. His first title is, uh, his first uh, chapter is titled, Teaching Frogs to Fly, where he tells the story about a guy who owns a frog and he insists that he can teach this frog how to fly. But of course, he can't. The gist of the chapter is just as it's impossible to teach frogs to fly, it's also impossible to teach people not to sin. He contends that people can be better, but they can never not sin. And in order to help save us, Brown says that Jesus doesn't offer us just three free sins. Jesus offers us unlimited free sins. Sounds pretty good to me. Sounds pretty appealing. Who would not sign up for a message like that? The only problem is it's not true. It's not true. This leads me to my topic of this morning, a topic that I know has intrigued so many people down through the years. The topic for today is, are we as believers eternally secure. And I can hear some of you inside going, ooh, ooh. Are we as believers eternally secure? Can we as believers continue to sin and still be secure, not just in this life, but in the life to come? There are many people, churches, and denominations who believe that once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior... There is nothing that you can do that will separate you from God. That you are eternally secure no matter if you sin or how often you sin. And let me just say up front, I know, I know this is a hot topic. This is a hot potato topic. Please know that as I discuss this this morning, I am not pronouncing judgment on anyone. That is between them and God. I personally know many, many people who adhere to this, but they themselves have been uh, um, um, washed by the blood of the Lamb. They themselves are living in victory, and they will join us in heaven someday. I do believe that. But this doctrine has grave consequences to it. And this is a topic that I'm going to try and tackle this morning. Where do we begin when we have a study like this? We have to start by defining the word sin. The Greek word for sin, some of you may know this, is harmatia. Harmatia. 
And what that means is to miss the mark. To miss the mark. Now this is incredibly important in our study because how one defines sin will determine their belief on the subject. So we must start here. Many who adhere to an eternal security belief have defined sin. Now listen to this. They define sin as anything done in life that is not perfect. That is not to the level of God's perfection. Many feel that the mark is godly perfection. That any time we are not perfect, we miss the mark. And since no man is perfect... Mankind cannot help but sin in word, thought, and deed every day. Some of you may have heard that, heard that before. Maybe you were raised in that philosophy. I don't know. But not to worry because God's grace just covers it all. But I ask you, is this true? Is this true? To answer that question, we really, what we need to do is we need to define what is the mark. We know that sin from the Bible tells us that it is to miss the mark of God. So what is the mark? Simply put, the mark is any command that God gives to mankind. Any command that God gives to mankind. God's commands have always, now hear this out, God's commands have always been clearly communicated clearly understood, and clearly within the ability of mankind to do. His commands have always been clearly communicated, clearly understood, and clearly within the grasp and the ability of mankind to do. Let's look at it like this. I thought of an illustration. Let's, um, let's say that I have a math exam that um, I have that in front of me. It's a math exam of 500 questions. How many of you like math? Any of you like math? What is wrong with you? Not many of you raised your hand this morning. I have a uh, series of 500 math questions, ranging anywhere from simple addition and subtraction to algebra 1, 2, and 3, geometry 1, 2, and 3, from calculus, from linear algebra to whatever the most complex form of math is. And then at the very end, I throw in this essay question. You don't have to write this down. You'll remember it, okay? This is an essay question. I want you to produce a flow chart of an algorithm that calculates the greatest common divisor of two numbers in the locations of A and B. Got it? Yeah, got it. Yeah. Produce a flow chart of an algorithm. I don't even know what an algorithm is. That calculates the greatest common divisor of two numbers in the locations of A and B. Let's say I take these 500 questions with that essay and I put them in front of a five-year-old boy. And I tell them that he needs to take this test. And not only does he need to take this test, but he needs to get every single question correct. And oh, by the way, you have 15 minutes to complete this test. What would you say? What would you think? You say, you've got to be out of your mind. You've got to be crazy to think that a five-year-old boy could do all of that. And I would contend this morning, church, that anyone who believes that the mark is living up to God's level of perfection, it's got to be crazy. 
The mark is not being perfect like God is perfect. Just follow me here with this. God never intended for you and me to be co-equals with Him. For God to expect imperfect humans to be like Him, a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, a God who is pure and holy, a God who is everlasting. A God who is almighty, who is incomparable. A God who is perfect. A God who is just and fair. He is all just and He is all fair. To expect a God like that, to expect us to live to that level, is not just or fair. So what does the Bible say? What is the mark? Time after time, we see God instructing His people with commands that are easily understood and commands that are well within man's ability to accomplish. Any time that God does not, that man does not do what God clearly tells them, this is disobedience. We recently read this in the uh, study over there. James 4, 7, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. But the key word there is the word know. To him who knows to do good. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis. It may, some of it may be on the screen, but turn to Genesis chapter 2. You probably knew that I was going to be going here. Genesis chapter 2. Whenever mankind does not obey what they know they should do, that's when they miss the mark. We're getting ready to see that. Genesis chapter 2. We see here where God told Adam and Eve what the mark is. And in this situation, what it was. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Actually, it's on 17 is on the screen, but I want to start in 16. Genesis 2, 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That, church, was the mark. That was God's command that was clearly communicated and it was clearly understood. But the next question is, was it really understood? How do we know that they understood it? Go to chapter 3. Chapter 3 of Genesis. We reviewed this a couple weeks ago in our class. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field was the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now keep in mind, Eve is the one who said this to the serpent. So we know that she clearly understood what the mark was. But who told Eve this? Well, back in chapter 2, God gave this command to man. He gave it to Adam. So Adam understood it. Adam told Eve. Adam understood and Eve understood as well. 
both clearly understood and it was within their ability to obey. Listen, God never intended man, you and I, to be like him, his level. That was the lie that the serpent just told Eve and Adam. To be like me, that was a lie. The mark was not being like God. Listen to me. The mark is obeying God. That's the difference. And every day, and even right now, some of you may be sensing what God is telling you to do. He just placed a mark on your life. That is the mark. It's not being like God. The mark was obeying God. For our purposes this morning, this is how we in the church of God and myself define sin. It's a known, willful rebellion against God and His commands. Sin is initiated only when that person feels a sense of moral obligation and voluntarily chooses to do that which he or she believes to be wrong. Why is this important? It's important because those in the eternal security camp feel as though anything done in life that is not perfect is considered a sin. For example, let's just say that you've had a long, frustrating day at work difficult day, a hard day. You come home and out of your weariness something happens and without even thinking about it, you say a cross word to your wife and many believe that was a sin. Or maybe you find yourself irritated or impatient with someone or something and all of a sudden you have a harsh thought go through your mind and they believe that's a sin. Or if you unintentionally go through a red light or a stop sign, that was a sin. These are examples of how some think we sin in word, thought, and deed every day, even though they're unintentional. But I contend that these are not examples of sin, but merely reflections of just being human. The Word of God tells us that uh, we, are, we are earthen vessels. We are like uh, clay. We're not perfect. Uh, in this life, only when we get to heaven will we be restored to that perfect condition that Adam and Eve had before their fall. Just reflections of how we are human in earthen vessels. There's no forethought, no intentional, willful disobedience to God. There is a key point that we need to pick up here. When we talk about salvation, what exactly happens when we accept Jesus Christ? Jesus takes those known, willful, actual sins and he forgives them. He casts them as far as the east is to the west. And then the Bible tells us this in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are adopted into the family of God. Amen? You are adopted into His family freely. By your free will, you chose to become a part of this Family. But listen, just as someone can choose to be adopted into the family of God, they can choose to leave that family as we will see in Scripture. As we will see in Scripture. 
Here's a, a key point as well. Salvation in Jesus Christ in Jeremiah 31 and in Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, they refer to this relationship with Jesus as the new covenant. The new covenant. It's not my words, that's God's words. The new covenant. It's one where God writes his laws on our minds and in our hearts. The covenant, a covenant, as you know, is an agreement between two people. Two parties. If either party breaks the rules of the covenant, the covenant can be considered null and void. Thus, our relationship and continued relationship with Jesus has two sides to it. Pulled out my Buckeye coin from my office just as an illustration. Two sides to any coin, obviously. In our salvation, we know that it's like a new covenant. There are two sides to a covenant. There is God's side... And there is man's side of the covenant. Know that on God's side, it is indeed secure. You don't have to look these up, but there is security on God's side. Look at these verses. 1 John 5.11 And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Hebrews 5.9 And having been perfected, He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is God's side of the equation. That is God's side of the new covenant. It is strong. It is secure in Him. But remember... There is our side of the covenant as well. Keeping in mind that after we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we still have free will. We still have the choice. And listen to these verses that refer to our side of the covenant. 1 John 5.13 These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. See, that who believes is optional. That's up to you and me. Another verse, Romans eleven twenty two. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. Colossians 1, 21 through 23, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Looking at salvation as a two-sided covenant, I do believe that there is security on God's side. He will never fail us, nor will He let us go, but this security only takes place as long as we continue to obey and follow Jesus Christ. That is our side. That is our part of the new covenant. And realize that all are conditional. The Bible is full of conditional promises, church. 
They're all condition, conditional. This is highly significant because of the effects of sin. Regardless if one is unsaved or saved, sin alienates one from God. Sin is a barrier to the fellowship and the communion with Him. Sin has always separated mankind from God, regardless, we see this in His Word, regardless of whether the individual knows Christ or they don't. So the big question this morning Are we as believers eternally secure? Everything that I've set up until now has been to kind of lay a foundation for what I and the church of God believe the truth to be. And the following verses that I'm going to go over with you, please know that they are being shared in admonition to encourage you, but also they're there as a warning. The first verse is James 5, 19 through 20. James 5, 19 through 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Look at that for a second. Notice, who is he talking to? Brothers. He's talking to believers. Let's notice that right away. And any believer who turns from the truth has now been labeled a sinner. Right there in front of you. And the consequence of this believer who is now turned sinner is death. But praise the Lord, it is possible to be returned and to be restored and to be reconciled back to God. Talking about those in the faith. 2 Peter 2, 20-21 For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment that God delivered to them. That is self-explanatory. Here is a key verse, John chapter 15, 4 through 6. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. The key word in this passage, church, is the word abide. Abide means to continue in something. It means to continue on the way. And in this case, it means to continue walking in obedience with God, obeying His Word, not yielding to sin. We're going to skip this next one. I already read that to you. Romans 11.22, Galatians 5.1-4. through 4. be one of my last ones. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, 
Christ will profit you nothing. Let me just stop right here and set this up. What was happening was there were many within the Jewish faith, the Jewish religion, they were stepping out and they were accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But there were those in the circle that were trying to get them to come back into the, uh, the law, the bondage, and be circumcised and listen to the law and the commandments. And, and Paul was saying, no, it's no longer about that. In the middle there, he said, Paul, I say to you that if you become circus, circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Folks, the Bible is full of conditional statements. So to answer the question... Are we as believers eternally secure? If one abides and obeys God, then yes, 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 praise the Lord. We are secure in Jesus Christ. Now, hear me out on this. We say all this to say that sin cannot have a place in a believer's life. However, down through the years, the church, Church of God, other holiness uh, churches and movements and denominations, what they have done is, we believe what Scripture says, but what they have done is they have turned this Christian life into a bunch of do's and don'ts, into a legalistic way of living. Some of you uh, were raised in this atmosphere, but um, women, you were only allowed to uh, ha- wear certain things, right? You were not allowed to wear makeup, uh, not allowed to wear jewelry. Your, your, your dresses uh, had to be so long. Uh, you could not cut your hair, things like that. Uh, men, uh, there was a day in time to where years ago it was sinful to wear a necktie. Believe that? And then, um, whenever they started to wear neckties, they said it's a sin not to wear a necktie. And they just go back and forth. Some of you remember some of these stories. It was, it was a sin to step foot into a movie theater. It was a sin to even go to a ball game. It was a sin to have coffee. That would nail most of you in this room, I think, this morning. <laughs> See, what they did, they tried to make it... Uh, Um, about a bunch of do's and don'ts and make it legalistic. And and what was happening is down through the years, we were raised in an atmosphere to where people were scared to death. And I'm here to tell you this morning, as I try and come to the end of this, that we do not need to live in fear of sinning or losing our salvation. It does not work like that. Listen. Listen. This is another message, but we are called to live holy lives. Amen? We are called to live holy lives. In John 14, Jesus talks about sending a helper, sending the Holy Spirit to help us. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is He leads us and He guides us and He whispers to us and He tells us how we should and shouldn't live. He tells us how we should and shouldn't dress. He tells us how, what kind of movies we should and should not go to. He tells us the kind of things that we should put into our bodies. Speaking of which, I've talked about this for a couple of weeks now, but um, <clears throat> one of the topics that I'm going to hit is, is alcohol a sin in the life of a believer? 
Um, I do plan on preaching that in a couple of weeks, so just stay tuned if that uh, piques your interest. Um, But the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us into a holy lifestyle. But you know what's wonderful? If we enter, as a believer, if we enter into a time to where we find that we're being disobedient to God, a time to where there is sin in our life, 1 John 2 tells us, My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone, notice he didn't say but when, but he said but if, conditional. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Again, who is he talking to? He's talking to the church. He's talking to brothers and sisters. And aren't you glad that we serve a God who is loving, who is gracious, who is merciful, so that if we do have a time to where we're out of step, we're out of line, we're in disobedience with him, he has made a way so that we can return to that fellowship. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. One of the key passages that emphasizes this entire point involves the church of Laodicea. No doubt this was once a thriving church or else there would never have been a church started there in Laodicea. However, listen to what is said to them, a a popular passage read many times. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The believers at the time in Laodicea had turned away. They had become lukewarm. Listen, I do not believe that a true believer all of a sudden walks away from God. We don't wake up one day and just, boom, I just decide... uh, um, you know, I want, like we decide what we want for breakfast or lunch. We don't wake up one day and just decide not to be a believer. It happens little by little. I believe anyone who backslides or falls from grace does so at a slow pace. We said this in our study on Wednesday night, but Casting Crowns has a song that goes like this. It's a slow fade when we give ourselves away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray. Thoughts invade. Choices are made. A price will be paid when we give ourselves away. People never crumble in a day. And it goes on to say, Mommy and Daddy never crumbles in a day. Families never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. Let me get to, I think, what is an exciting part of this message. Then I'll close. Romans 6.1. Paul said, shall we, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly 
not. So the question for us today, I mean, we know that we've got to continue to walk with the Lord. We've got to continue to obey Him. We can't allow our lives to be influenced by the evil ones. So how do we avoid this thing called sin in our life? That's really what the question is every day. Let me give you some good news, but a quick review. Salvation and justification. Salvation and justification. This is what happens when, it, when that happens in your life. Salvation and justification is a one-time saving act and creation of a new man inside. It's having God forgive us from our sins to have Jesus come live inside of our hearts. It's having our names written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me just say this. Someone submitted a question. If you're new this morning, we're in the middle of a series called What's on Your Mind. I've asked the congregation to submit questions that they would like to hear preached on. And someone submitted this question right here, and I just thought, you know what, I can just answer that. I can kill two, with one, uh, kill two birds with one stone. The bonus question someone asked me is, if we are forgiven and God remembers our sin no more, what is written in the book of life? If we are forgiven and God remembers our sin no more, what is written in the book of life? I won't take time to turn there, but Revelation 3.5 and Revelation 20.12 tells us that the book of life is not God's nasty list. It's not the list of everybody who has sinned containing all the names of our sins. It's a book that contains the names of the people who have accepted Jesus as their Savior. Those who are in line to receive the gift of everlasting life. If you want to be in God's book of life, accept Him as your Lord and Savior this morning. If you've never done that, if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior... Your name is not in that book of life. That's the one book you want your name in. That's the one place you want to make sure your name is in. Salvation and justification is like this. There was a young man who had received a speeding ticket. He admitted that he was going too fast and that he willingly and knowingly broke the posted law. He goes to court to see the judge to settle his debt for breaking the law. When he appears before the judge, he sees his father in the robe behind the depths. The father, with sadness, finds his son guilty. Guilty of breaking the law and sets the required fine. Next, in a startling move, he, the father takes off his robe. He steps down from the bench and he walks over to his son, The father is now in street clothes and he takes the ticket. He reaches into his wallet and he pays the fine to the court. He climbs back up into the bench and he dresses in his robe once more. And he looks at his son and he says, your debt is paid. You are free to go. Slow down and mind the speed limit. The son's record is as clean as if he had never sped in the first place. And his standing as a law-abiding citizen is restored. Listen, that is symbolic, uh, symbolic story to tell us that God is the judge who had removed his robe, stripped down to the flesh in the form of Jesus, and pays our debt for our wrongdoings. Our debt is paid through Jesus' work on the cross. 
and we receive perfect righteousness, not because of anything that we have done, but because he extends his grace as a pardon. And when he looks at us, he sees his son, his son's all-encompassing sacrifice on our behalf. Somebody say amen to that. So how do we avoid this thing called sin? That's what happens upon salvation. How do we keep this thing called sin from just controlling our lives? I believe there's probably people in here this morning, you've been struggling. There's an internal battle going on. It's a battle between uh, um, to do what's wrong and to do what you know God wants you to do. Through the process called sanctification, we have the ability, church, to stay saved and to live above sin. Praise the Lord. There is a way that God has made for us. With the help and with the power of the Holy Spirit, this is a process that began the day that we accepted Jesus. And it will continue until we take our final breath. It's becoming more and more like Jesus. It's an ongoing work. Going back to our illustration with the boy who had the speeding ticket. This is where our minds, this is where your minds should be after you accept Christ. And then I'll close. When the father extended his hand filled with enough money to cover the charges, the son with tears in his eyes, his head bowed, humbly accepted the gift. With a contrite heart, not one of entitlement, the son accepted his father's offer to settle his debt. He knew that he had broken the law. It was his debt. And he knew that he did not deserve the freedom he was going to receive. When he left the courtroom, it was with overwhelming gratitude and a new desire to please his father and to not put either of them in that position Again, that gratitude is now our motivation for living a holy life. After Christ comes inside, our desire to speed and to willingly break the law should go away. We don't want to go back to that life of sin. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, with the help of the Holy Spirit, with the help, of the Holy Spirit. We can have victory. Victory. Victory over the enemy. Listen, no, God does not want our lives to be lived in sin. Uh, Paul just said that. Jesus just said that through Paul there. Our lives should not be dominated with this. But instead, as Paul said, we die daily allowing the Holy Spirit to fill us. And we talked about this. There will be those times to where the Holy Spirit will say, watch out, get ready, here's a warning sign, don't, don't proceed ahead. I'm warning you, don't do this. We have the ability to say yes or no, but if we live to the Holy Spirit, we'll say yes to Him and no to the enemy. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Would you bow your heads, please? Bow your heads. I'm going to ask Mandy to come up, Joyce to come up. I don't know how this message has hit you. And I'm so glad that I don't have to live in fear. I do not have to live in fear.
I can lay my head on my pillow at night and know that the Holy Spirit is leading me and guiding me. Maybe there's someone here this morning that you can't say that. You've accepted Christ, but your life has, has just been a constant battle of uh, a war and a raging within. Uh, you, you just can't seem to find the victory over this thing in your life. And, but you want to, and you love the Lord, but um, you just can't find the power. This morning there is grace. There is power. There is a sanctifying power that you can have if you just die once again to yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to come inside and to fill you, to fill you even more, to fill you with power and the ability to say yes, that you no longer want to do this, you no longer want to hurt that individual, hurt yourself, but ultimately you don't want to hurt your Heavenly Father who has forgiven you and has brought you into the family of God. There is victory for you. There is victory for you. We need God to draw us nearer this morning, nearer, blessed Lord. Father God, if there's anyone here this morning that that's their life, I pray that you would help them. They can find victory this morning before leaving. Thank you. Thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name.